Apparently the Bible's a story about real people, and you all are real people. So if I was to put you in that chapter, and I was to say, by faith, insert your name here, what's, what's the next words? What's the next sentence of your story? By faith. I'm going to throw out some ideas, but just in in the quietness of your own space internally, think and pray. By faith, she was patient. By by faith, he forgave. (coughs) By faith, they trusted. By faith, she gave. By faith, he gave up. What what is the next sentence? By faith. Father, I don't know about my friends, but I know enough about myself to know that I want you to write that sentence. I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me in black and white what, what my next line is. I want to say, I want to, I want to ask you specifically what I should do, where I should go, who I should be. God, would you give us an encounter with you in your, in your word today that we see folks who don't know what the next line is, but by faith, by believing in something they could not see, They take an action. God, would you help this group of people to by faith in something that we, a possibility we cannot see, a reality we think could never exist, to take an action, an action that might usher in your kingdom, that might make this place more like your place. God, help us by your spirit, your words, be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. For his kingdom's sake we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Genesis 49. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. It says this, Then he, the he is Jacob, gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan which Abraham brought, bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Kind of a dark text. We're going to go through two deaths today. In the Bible, Jacob and his son Joseph's. And in Jacob's death, and in both of these deaths, we're going to have a big, big question. And the question is this 
What is this family going to be? What, it, what is this story going to actually be in the next generation? And the generation after that? And the ten generations after that? The decisions that are made here. Are you listening? The decisions that are made in this gen- generation will impact generations 400 years in the future. And 4,000 years in the future. This story is affecting your life right now today because of the decisions that were made by some of the people in these stories. I think a lot of the times in my life I can think, man, I'm just like a drop in the ocean, you know? Do you ever feel like that? Like, what is it all really, like, is this really, does any of it matter? Maybe it's just me as a pastor saying, does any of it matter? Like, does any of it We're all just sand on the seashore, but the story is that all the sand matters. And that every single grain in it and every single person and every single story has these ripple effects through thousands of years. That's your story. That's mine. And the question here is going to be, who is this family going to become? What are they going to become? Jacob is saying, I'm going to die and I want you to bury me as a deposit in Canaan. This is how important This people's identity is. They are planning long distance burials in the land to ground themselves. That's a pun. Literally, to ground themselves in the story of God. The story he's told his people. Look at verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. To his people. Instructions to his sons gathered to his people. Think for just a moment, if you will, about the power of such a conflicted and flawed character such as Jacob. And if you haven't been with us, just know that the word Jacob means deceiver, the trickster. And he has lived up to that name even as he's been given a new one in God's story. What does it mean that this guy... His faith, his relationships, constantly in conflict the whole time. But somehow he lands in peace. Encouraging. (laughs) For those of us who wonder if our stories could ever end in peace. Or get to peace. Jacob's death is one of the most hopeful we see in the scriptures. Because we see how far he has come. And how much he has been through. He wants to be buried in Canaan. Because as we saw last week, his last act was to tell his sons, you need to get caught up in the story. Like he was desperate that they would get wrapped up in the story that had changed his life. And he challenges them. And he encourages them. Look at Genesis 50. This is the last chapter in Genesis, verse 1. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. Now, if I'm in the ancient world and I'm reading this text, and I'm part of the people of God and I'm going along, I'm thinking, man, oh, and he lived happily ever after. He died. He was gathered up his feet into his bed. He was gathered to his people. He said he was going to be buried in the land of Canaan, which is the land of promises. It's just a beautiful, perfect ending. Except it's not. Because in Israel, you don't embalm people. You do that in Egypt. That's what you do when someone dies. 
He directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him 70 days. If I'm following along in context of this story, at this point I'm like, is he going to get buried where he needs to get buried? Because it doesn't really look like that. And it doesn't really look like Joseph got it. Does it? Because if Joseph got it, would he have maybe embalmed him and given him like a proper Egyptian, Egyptian-ness funeral? No, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have done that. He, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he would have taken his body to Canaan and deposited it. There's a conflict in the body of Jacob, the dead body of Jacob. Is this dark for anyone? His dead body is a conflict over the future of the family. Do you see how Egyptian Joseph has become? Do you see how beautiful the reconciliation is in his family? After all that has happened, the entire empire mourns for a Hebrew who they wouldn't even have eaten with. This shows how compelling Joseph was. This shows how powerful he was. And it's also incredible that Jacob, the one who came clutching, he came into the story clutching at the heel of his brother, conned his way into the middle of the story, and he did dies in such a way as to be so honored. Look at verse 4. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. All of Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. Do you see what kind of funeral this is? What kind of procession this is? Joseph has to go to Pharaoh to ask his permission to leave, to bury his father in the place where he was meant to be buried. Now all all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt are accompanying a guy's body who they would never have even eaten with. Why? Why? Do you you think that let me go up and bury my father could be a euphemism for I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to just kind of sneak away from the empire and get away somehow. He sends this huge profession. I don't think it's an accident. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging in his father's household in verse 8, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen. Why? Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. A company. You can call me cynical, but I think Pharaoh is making a big statement about this family and about this family's future. I think Pharaoh is saying, you are mine now. And yeah, you can go bury him, but that doesn't change any part of who owns you. And whose you are. Now, this is an interesting point because this is an Egyptian procession in a picture where Jacob's death is about whether or not his family will remember who they are. And it goes on, look at verse 10. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly because they were, they were told to. 
And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, what? Did they say the Israelites are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning? No. They say, who are these? What do they say? The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. They believed that it was Egyptian. Why? Because it looked Egyptian. And it sounded Egyptian. And it was accompanied by the Egyptian army and all of the Egyptian power. It looked Egyptian. Why would they think any different? But this is not an Egyptian funeral. Or is it? Look at verse 12. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. Do you get the sense that the writer wants you to know where they're buried? After over and over and over again telling you exactly where and exactly who they bought it from. Over and over. Like we have three times just in this one passage and we've seen over and over and over and over again. It's almost like it was an important place to the writer. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. They do what Jacob asked. In the coming generations, when the Hebrews tell their origin story, because we all have one, right? When they tell their origin story, the story will be about where their fathers are buried. And it will be all about the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of the story. When they languish in slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, which they will. They will tell this story to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. About their adventures to find a home, to find a place where they belonged. They will hear that God promised them a good home as they are slaves. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And do you see the power of guilt in this story? We've been talking about the guilt of the brothers for literally, what, four or five weeks? And their father just, like, the forgiveness, you know, remember like the party we had? When Joseph forgave his brothers like three weeks ago? That was like decades ago in the story relative to this. And they haven't let it go. That's what guilt does. It's this poison. And it just keeps working and working and working. And and they never actually really dealt with it. And so here at the end, when their father is dead, they think, wait a minute. What if he comes to get us? After Joseph had forgiven the brothers and set them up with provisions in Egypt, after all that, the guilt and the fear is still operative, still operating in their hearts and their minds. Afraid that Joseph didn't forgive them. Afraid that God would have them punished and destroyed because that is how they view God. Not as a God that has a plan and a story and a a purpose for for them. That's not how they see God. How do you see God? Because they see Him as a kid 
with a magnifying glass zapping ants. That's how they see their God. How do you see yours? What, what is operative in your life? Because for them it was guilt and fear and shame. So they sent word to Joseph in verse 16 saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Look at how broken this family is. He's dead. They've already been forgiven. They can't quit lying. This is what he said. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, of, of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. I mean, there's so many questions here. <laughs> you think that the guy who put his hand under your father's thigh and swore that he would bury him in the right place, you think that he's going to be tricked by you sending some, like, from beyond the grave message from your dad? Like, I don't know why Joseph is weeping, and the text doesn't explicitly tell us why, but what are the reasons why he could be weeping? I mean, I've already, I've forgiven you. This is water under the bridge by decades. Do you see that their relationship, like there may have been forgiveness, but there was a reconciliation? Like, Joseph weeps because his brothers have to lie to try to force him to forget, I mean, do you hear this? Are, is there any place in your life where you're trying to force someone to do something? He weeps. I mean, I mean, what if he says, I forgive you at this point? If, if Joseph says, I forgive you, what do they think the thing is that got him to forgive them? They're lying. It's almost like they are so twisted and they are so broken that forgiveness isn't even working. It couldn't even work. There's no way to even forgive because they're, so, they're lying. And they can't see. Verse 18, his brothers came then and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Do you remember the story at the beginning of this? If you haven't been with us, this story began with a dream. And it began with a dream that God had given to Joseph. And this dream was of the stars bowing down, 12 of them to be exact, or 11 of them, to, to bow down and to bow down at his feet. And his brothers at the beginning of the story resented him for his dreams and wanted him dead for those dreams. They thought that that dream meant that they would be destroyed. Can you imagine? Imagine this. This is like decades later. And you're on your knees in front of your brother begging for forgiveness. An act that you want to save you that you thought would destroy you. I mean, this is, this is so crazy it might be true, this story. I mean, really. Do you see the reversal? Do you see the, the irony? We are your slaves. Joseph doesn't want them to be his slaves. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. This is billed as the most powerful line in Joseph's story in the Bible, and it is. But do you see how redundant it is? That we've already been here. And because of their twisted hearts, they couldn't see it. And they were racked with fear because of it. But he says, when, you know, when people ask you for forgiveness, even when your motives, their motives might be unclear or mixed, how do you respond? Joseph doesn't dismiss their motive. Look at, their motives are, were awful. They had tried to hurt Joseph, kill him. They thought that Joseph rising into a position of influence meant their doom when it actually meant their salvation. But what they meant for evil, Joseph can see that God used for good. If you look into the language here, it literally says, literally what you planned for evil, God planned for good. And this is the most, one of the most difficult things to believe as a person of faith. I'll be the first to say that something evil, that something that's not just a random accident, but that is an actual evil thing, something planned and intended and crafted to be a destructive force could be harnessed for something good, could be a part of some bigger arc. If you look at Joseph and his brothers, you see that God worked with their evil, destructive motives, and actions to bring about the exact dream that he had given at the beginning. I don't know what discipline it is. I can't remember, and this is this has popped in my head, but there's some sort of martial art. I'm not an expert, but there's some sort of martial art where you use, maybe you all know and you can tell me, where you use your opponent's kicks and punches, use their energy against them. You redirect. I always loved it when I watched martial arts movies as a kid. I was a huge Jackie Chan fan. You're welcome. Um, and I loved it when he made someone hit themselves. You know when your little brother or your big brother, I was the big brother. So I remember when I would make my siblings hit themselves. It was beautiful. I know that never happens to anyone else, but like... You know, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. You remember this line? Anyone? Anyone? Was I the only one? Um, but, you know, you use your opponent's power. And, and it's, like, it's like the brothers came at Joseph with all of their punches and kicks. And God is the Jackie Chan of the universe that is able to redirect. I remember there was this one moment, I can't remember what movie it's from. But, like, this guy is angry and he runs at Jackie Chan. And at the end of it, the guy is like sitting cross-legged, like hugging himself or something. Because he's just wrapped him up. And he somehow fixed it. When Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God used for good, it means that in the scope of the cosmos, and this is one of the most insane things I could say on a Sunday morning, it really is. That in the scope of the cosmos, that God is working out something good. That's he, that he's using all the kicks and all the blows and all the half starts and all the destruction to somehow, and we can't see, to somehow bring something good.
He used their own evil motives. Listen to me, their own evil motives to save their own lives. Now, if we were to honestly walk through this story, maybe some of you are super familiar with it. But if we do that without jumping to crazy conclusions, we have no idea at the beginning how God could work this out at the end. Just like the story of the world, just like the story of your family and my life, do you remember the big picture of Genesis? That God created the world good, that he crafted humanity as an expression of his likeness, as creatures to partner with him in taking care of and administering and creatively ordering the world. It went sideways and we fell. We fall. Evil and destruction and death and darkness entered into the story. And there is this question hanging over all of Genesis and hanging over all of your lives and mine. Is everything ruined? I mean, I bet, I bet there are many moments in Joseph's life where he asks, like, is that dream just fantasy? You know? Is it just a fantasy that God could love me? That there could be something good come out of this? The argument here is that God is so powerful and so kind and so good, somehow able to move through a story where we don't actually ever see him intervene. Do you remember that? Remember I told you that weeks ago? We don't actually ever see God show up to Joseph and say, here, do this, do that. That doesn't happen in this story. Yet, he brings about salvation. This is a complex view of faith. This view places a living, breathing trust, a by faith, that God is working things for good while we partner with him in working things for good. A lot of times, and I know there's a lot of folks around that are looking for some sort of sign that you should jump in and do something. Joseph does stuff without direction because he's, he's the child of God. Get to work. Get to work. Look at verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years, which is, by the way, a typical, uh, an actual, like, Egyptian conception of a long life. We find in other texts, like, if an Egyptian wanted to say you had a long life, they would say you lived 110 years, which is just weird, and furthers the conflict between Egypt and Israel here. And saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the Arab Makir and the son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Joseph sees the next few generations. He is able, like his father, to pass on wisdom and blessing in their origin story. While he stayed in Egypt, he surrounds himself with the story. Look at verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is surprising. Because I don't know about you, but me, I thought we might have lost Joseph to Egypt. Being the second most powerful in the, in the whole land. Administering the empire, being Pharaoh's right-hand guy. So much so that Pharaoh basically just kind of abdicates and says, whatever Joseph says, you do it. 
I thought we lost Joseph at different times to Egypt, but we didn't. Because Joseph declares at the end of his life, this bridge to the next thing, the next part, the next chapter in the story. He says the story will not end in Egypt. I want you to hear your story does not end in Egypt. It will be hundreds of years before God's people get to go home. We know that their home is more than the dirt. We're going to see that here in just a minute, but it's going to be hundreds of years. Hundreds. Look at verse 25. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. What? What? When when Joseph's father Jacob died, he said, bury me in my home. And when Joseph dies, he prophetically, profoundly says, this story will not end here in captivity. But you're going to have to take all my bones out of here. You're going to have to place my bones on layaway. So that when God shows up as I know he has to, because he is good and he is working out some good tale in this story, I know I can see by faith that something must happen to intervene. That God in some way, somehow, will come. So put my bones on layaway. Look at verse 26. So Joseph died. This is the last verse. (laughs) At the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, an Egyptian thing, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Where it would take him a long time to turn to bones. Hundreds of years to turn to bones. You know, we may read this and you're like, okay, we're at the end of... Genesis, I get you're trying to make it a huge dramatic ending, but it's kind of boring. You know, this ending of Genesis is so important to the writers of the scripture. It is so important to the imagination of God's people in Egypt that they will hold on to his bones and they will carry his bones out of Egypt. Like, that's how important Joseph's bones are. By the way, his bones are nothing, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, who cares? We're all going to dust. Spoiler alert. I don't know if your bones are going to mean what Joseph's bones means, but what this verse says is that Joseph's life matters. And it is a bridge to the salvation of God's people. Look at what Hebrews 11 says. This is our last time, last, last little bit of scripture today. Look at what Hebrews 11, this hall of fame of faith, which that's, I, it's a terrible word for it, but it, it, it's accurate. Like when the writers of the scripture are trying to come up with the people to talk about, about faith, this is what they talk about. By faith, Jacob, in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, and we might not have it on the screen, but by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. 
Huh? Like, if I'm looking for something in his life to say this is a hallmark of his faith, you know what I have to do? I have to go to his very end, the, the very last whispers of his mouth to say, remember God's story. Like, find yourself in God's story and him worshiping that his sons might get it. That's the big act of faith. By faith, Joseph, in verse 22, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as one of the weirdest possible things that the scriptures could say about an act of faith. But how weird is yours going to be? And how weird is mine going to be? And how personal are these acts of faith? You may think that a life with God and, and to say when I asked you at the beginning, by faith, uh, so-and-so preached a sermon. Or by faith, they saved the lives of, I mean, by faith, he, he gave instructions about his bones. By faith, the doddering old man leaned on his staff and worshipped. And his kids could see that he was at peace. By faith you, by faith me. This act of faith by Joseph is a radical statement about the way things are. And that is that the way things are is not the way that they will be. That there will be an exodus back home out of the grasp of the empire of Egypt. This is a metaphor. It is also not a metaphor. Because <laughs> there will be an actual exodus out of Egypt. But it's also a metaphor for you and me because we live in our own Egypt. Hold on to my bones, he says. God will intervene, he says. And when he does, not if he does, when he does, take these bones home. What would God have you do by faith? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Take a second. And we got kind of a weird text today. We're going to end right where we began. By faith. It's, a, it's you know, insert your name here. Maybe God's asking you to do something that seems really, really weird. Or maybe the next step just seems really, really strange. Like giving instructions on where to put your bones. <laughs> Probably isn't that. But what is it? What does it look like for you to take a step into the unknown? By faith. Trusting that you're caught up in a story that's much bigger than you. Take a couple minutes, pray, reflect.
God, I pray you'd give us some courage today. Courage to see our lives with, with these kind of eyes. Eyes of faith, eyes of trust. God, show us the difficult, often painful, often weird way that we need to follow your son Jesus in faith, in love, in forgiving, in having great vision, in acts of kindness and compassion. Father, would you not let anyone in here wait to do the thing that they were put here to do by faith? Give my friends, give myself courage to not be just hearers of the word, to not just hear an interesting story about bones and burials, but God, that it would give us pause to think of our own bones, of our own stories, of our own lives about the things that you've put in our lives to bring about good somehow, somehow. God, I thank you that we don't have to know how. <laughs> I wanna know how it's gonna all turn out. But God, give me the faith to take another step. And give my friends to, the faith to take their next step, God, by your grace. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this journey that we've taken. And, for your word and how it's alive, how it does stuff to us. It pricks our hearts and our imaginations and draws us further on the journey with you, with others. God, send us out to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.